Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Clea Hollis discusses her book, Saga of the Johnstown City Schools. Clea Hollis, author of the Saga of the Johnstown City Schools. Uh, can you tell me why you wrote the book? That's a very interesting question. I wrote the book uh, basically finishing uh, a project, an assignment of my late husband, Dr. Levi B. Hollis. We were uh, living in Warren, Ohio. Uh, he was an administrator there in the Warren City Schools. And we had an offer uh, uh, to come to Johnstown, Pennsylvania. My husband found it to be a challenge. And I said to him, let's go and see what we're going to turn down. And when he arrived in Johnstown, he saw a school system that he felt that he could make a difference. And also, my husband was a scholar. Uh, he uh, received his doctorate from Kent State University during the time of the Kent State riots. And he had gone to Ohio State for his master's. So he was a scholar of education. Uh, he had uh, developed a program in Warren, Ohio called Alternative School um, Focus Center, which was known throughout Ohio. And when we came here, he looked at the uh, Johnstown schools is something that he could bring his expertise and make a difference. And when he saw the devastation, time after time, of Johnstown and how the people in Johnstown had rebuilt, when he met the sitting superintendent, Dr. Donato Zucco, who was then uh, superintendent in 1975, he felt it was a person whom he could work with to make a difference. So he began, and he felt in retirement, that he would write a book on the Johnstown schools. So immediately upon arriving, he started collecting data, started reading um, newspapers, started uh, looking at news, uh, school board minutes. And after church, uh, the children, we had two children at that time, and our son was in kindergarten when we came to uh, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and my daughter was in second grade. So after church on Sundays, if you're looking for the Hollis family, You'd find them in my, off, my husband's office, and at the bottom of his office were all the archives of the schools. And so therefore, this is where we spent our Sundays, time and time after, and everything that was written about the schools, and up until the time of his death, was collected. So when I cleaned out his office, I had in bundles, baskets of materials of his sudden death in uh, 1989 also all his files at home. And so my daughter-in-law at this time, and here I'm going from a five-year-old kid in kindergarten, now I'm talking about a daughter-in-law, so you see the years have spanned it. Uh, my son um, is a software engineer who had gone to Notre Dame and was a, was a uh, sophomore in college at the time of his father's death. And so my daughter-in-law, after they graduated, came and she says, Mom, she says, Either you know, we had a bedroom, when our guest room now was now a collection center. And she says, Mom, 
either you write or I'm gonna call a dumpster. <laughs> and I was very much offended, very much offended. And so my daughter said to me, who, uh, who now has her doctorate, uh, she says, Mom, let's write the book for Dad. And so basically we started taking his minute pieces of paper, his uh, notes, his collection, and we started to write. And uh, she was doing her, working on her master's at the University of Pittsburgh. She graduated from Rutgers University as a Henry Ruckert Scholar. And she said, I'm coming home to go to graduate school, but home was in Pittsburgh, 70 miles away. And so she went, uh, when she went to uh, the University of Pittsburgh, she became uh, weekends and her days off between classes. And she actually went through the school board minutes again, looking for data and information. And then she went on to Boston U and uh, received her doctorate. And she got busy in her own life. And uh, two gentlemen who had worked with my husband, who simply admired him, approached me and they said, we're thinking about writing a book and we would like to dedicate this book to your husband. And I said to them, I says, well, my daughter and I are writing a book. And I think dedicating it to my husband might be a good idea. So this inspired us. And I contacted the NAACP that I'm very involved with, and they said they would support the writing of the book. And also, uh, we received a grant from the Community Foundation of the Southern Alleghenies and we began to write. And so actually, how did we get them to start to write? It was mainly a dream of my husband's that we completed. And in the appendix of the book, he, took, he came as assistant superintendent, director of curriculum. He's very much into curriculum. What year did he start in Johnstown? In Johnstown, 1975. So in 1984, his great-grandfather had been superintendent of schools in Salton, Alabama. It was sort of like a dream that he had aspired, but he didn't think it would be in Johnstown. We came to Johnstown for five years. I'm still there 30 years. And I say I came by force, I stayed by choice. But he came when he so materials, we wrote the book basically fulfilling his dream of writing about the Johnstown School. So the saga of the Johnstown City Schools ranged 200 years of history. When we started to write, and during the time of the Johnstown schools, it was 50 schools. And my husband had a plan at the time of his death in 1989 of condensing these schools, and which uh, reduced enrollment and so forth, uh, then, uh, called for less size of the schools, uh, to four schools. And now- Out of 50. Out of 50. So now the Johnstown schools are basically like his plan of having, there is a high school, one high school, there is a junior high school, and there are two elementaries, East Side Elementary and West Side Elementary. So there are two elementaries condensed from the four, and basically, instead of the um, community neighborhood schools, the students you walk to, they're now into divisions of the city. And um, basically, the schools now, and the renovation of the Johnstown High School, uh, the basic schools are a plan that he had at the time of his illness and death. Uh, 
when they had 50 schools, how small were the neighborhood schools? The neighbor, well, you have to consider how large was Johnstown. And that is more of the question. But large, Johnstown had hit numbers, a record high before the war, before the flood. The uh, Johnstown, in 19, we had our great flood in 1989. 1889. 1889, I'm sorry, thank you. 1889, uh, 1889, which devastated the city. And therefore, there was rebuilding of the city. And then again, another flood in 1936. There was rebuilding. And even though you have the rebuilding, there are always skeptics that say, I don't want to be flooded again. And so there's an exit. And so therefore, uh, in the flood, and when we moved there in 1975, I said, I don't belong here. Every time I go out in public, people talk about the flood. I can't talk about a flood. So therefore, unless you can talk about a flood, you don't have a place in Johnstown. And in 1977, the 1977 flood came and basically closed many of the schools. The whole downtown, you can see marks on the buildings, flood marks. And I said, it's a shame to say this, but now I belong because I have a flood. And therefore, I was again seeing the people rebuild, seeing the city schools put back together. So therefore, the enrollment in the city schools were condensed as people left the city area, as they moved to the suburbs, the Westmont, Richland, they moved to the suburbs, and also with lack of jobs and industry, the steel mill basically closed after that, and many of the people left. So therefore, condensing the schools now that had a reduced population was a natural thing to do. And so the 50 schools were condensed, and therefore, when you have smaller schools, you're not able to give them the, uh, the technical information. You're not able to have the uh, special teachers and so forth that you would in a, in a, in a more condensed school. So these uh, resources have been condensed into the four schools we can give a better education to students in Johnstown. Uh, for someone who's never been to Johnstown, can you describe it? Johnstown is like a basin, and this is why the floods have come, and we're supposed to be a flood-free city. Well, we were supposed to be a flood-free city in 1977 also. But it's like a basin, and so the city of Johnstown is down in the basin, and then the suburban areas have moved up, and some of the, some of the areas are part of the Johnstown area. But we have the Westmont, which is all Westmont, if you read... Uh, stories of Johnstown flood in 19, uh, 1889, you can see where they were trying to get up to Green Hill, which is referred to. Green Hill is the Westmont Hill that everyone was trying to get up to. And the inclined plane, which is the longest inclined plane that takes vehicles up the hillside, was built right after the 1889 flood. And that is because People could, were trapped in the city and could not get out. So not only can they get out, they can get out now with their vehicles. So that that was used, and has never been used for a flood. I think it may have been used in uh, some of the, but not to the extent I think that was needed. And then we have the Richland Hill, where people, which is a new development. And there you'll find 
of the University of Pittsburgh Johnstown campus, which is a campus which I retired from in 2000. And you find the um, other large area, the development technical part that is growing. It's a growing in, uh, industry, find the largest Walmart there, uh, but find areas that are growing. And then you find the Prospect Hill, which is going up on another hilltop. So you have these communities around the city of Johnstown, and therefore when the floodwaters come, they come, and if the sewers are not um, protected or not ready for a heavy rainfall, then this is where the flooding comes. But the city schools, the schools are in the city. There are areas of the city, of the hills, that take in the city or the city schools. And so there would be prospects. There would be Stony Creek. There would be other, these schools, these communities feed into the Johnstown schools. Plus there is a residential section of Johnstown. What kept you in Johnstown after your husband passed away, after you retired, if your kids moved away? My kids moved away. Uh, my kids went to school and never came back. My daughter went to the University of Rutgers, and then, as I said, she went on for a doctorate. My son went to Notre Dame University, and he is a software engineer, and he's now living in San Antonio, Texas. But when I said I came by choice, I came by force, I stayed by choice, Johnstown is such a friendly town. Uh, I have, I'm without family in Johnstown, and yet my friends are like family. I had worked for the University of Pittsburgh Johnstown campus uh, for a number of years before uh, retiring, before going there. I had befriend many people on uh, faculty members and staff members on the University of uh, Pittsburgh. And so therefore, and I am the president of the Johnstown branch of the NAACP, and I've held that seat for three terms since retirement. So you can't leave when you're president of something. <laughs> but I stayed because of the friendliness and the warmth of the town. And I have been there 30 years. I've been, I lived there longer than I've lived any place. And since I've lived there longer than any, I feel comfortable there. It's still a place where you have, and at one time, it was considered the safest city. Uh, it's always considered a friendly city. And even though we have had different, with the devastation, you found a city where people were helping one another and expecting to call upon and not afraid to be asked to do something and usually follow through. So I found so many good things about the people of Johnstown that I've remained and really call it home. Even though I'm not a native of Johnstown, I feel that I am. My children have uh, recently, last year, donated to the Community Foundation for um, Southern Alleghenies, again, one who had funded the book, and out of respect and honor to them, they donated for an endowment scholarship for students who are graduating from uh, the Johnstown schools. And even though they're not living there, they have a great respect for the city that had basically given them their start in life. Uh, my daughter uh, recently, last week, she sent me an email saying she had referred somebody in Johnstown to do something because, she said, because I want to still support uh, the town that I grew up. Yet they were born, as I said, in Ohio. 
Did they, they attended Johnstown Public Schools? They attended Richland School District where I taught. I taught in the Richland School District before going to the University of Pittsburgh. And we always had a philosophy that everyone in the family had to make it on their own. And since uh, my husband was assistant superintendent and then the superintendent of the Johnstown Schools, we felt we wanted them to earn their own, not because he was in an administrative field, but because they were capable. They were both classified as gifted students by the state of Pennsylvania. They both graduated from Richland High School, which is, has a Johnstown PA address with honors. But it was a different school district than when your husband district, was superintendent. Even though there was a Johnstown PA address, mm -hmm. it's a different school district. And, they, and I think they made it on their own. And this is what we wanted in the family. And so therefore, I never taught in the school system that he superintended in or an administrator. And the children did not attend a school where he was an administrator. Now, your, your husband was Dr. Hollis, and you are Dr. Hollis, and your daughter is Dr. Hollis. Is your son Dr. Hollis? No, he says he's a software engineer. Doesn't need a doctor. And, well, he <laughs> says, I'm the black sheep of the family, and I says, not really. We are educators. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, he's very capable. Uh, he has his own business, Threat Guard, which he has a business, has um, offices in many places, and one is in Johnstown. So he is frequent Johnstown uh, quite often with his uh, with Threat Guard. He also uh, contributes to the community. And the whole family uh, are life members of the NAACP, uh, affiliated with the Johnstown branch. And so therefore, their interests, even though they are, and I'm hoping someday they will return to their uh, city, but they have much love for Johnstown. Uh, but in the meantime, they are, still have a lot of respect. And I say in the, um, my daughter, in her dedication, uh, writing a dedication for her father, she says, and the saga of Johnstown schools echoes from the halls. She state that her dad had left the legacy of tying the family to the progress of the Johnstown city schools and Johnstown. And I thought even that uh, she realizes that we're basically tied into Johnstown regardless. And so the book, again, is speaking to the time, the effort, the contributions that we as a family have made to the Johnstown schools and yet recognizing others. The school had, this book has a very special, uh, I think, ring. There has been much emphasis on writing the whole history or writing history with the contributions of minorities. And a couple years ago, I gave a presentation for the American Association for Affirmative Action in Washington, D.C. And I did a workshop on writing a book. Uh, and with writing the book, it basically said we are looking for areas and there's a lot of rhetoric about rewriting history. And my philosophy is not to rewrite history, but to write history. Write history for the first time. Find a segment of history where certain groups of people are not included. Look at that segment of history that has not been written and write them in for the first time. And so this book is written, the history of the Johnstown schools had not been written. And so we go back 
the 200 years of history, and we say, what contributions have different minority groups made? And so therefore, we go back and we find out these contributions through school board minutes and through school board notes of how these issues and things are handled and what contributions and what, uh, and so therefore, it is written into this book of the minority contributions with my husband taking a chapter and some of the contributions that he actually programs, he actually implemented into the school district from 1975, uh, which still has implication now, but to 1989. And also some of the other accomplishments of minorities coming to Johnstown and what impact they had on the school system. So with the workshop uh, that we gave, it was basically looking at writing history and not rewriting history. And I felt with the audience I had there, uh, they seemed to have seemed something, a light bulb seemed to have clicked. And I've gotten many calls and so forth to basically give them a plan as far as rewriting history and how you go about it and looking at school board minutes. And some of these documents, they're public documents. It's just a matter of knowing where they are and going in and basically taking the time to look at like 200 years of school board minutes. And that sounds like that might be just the driest thing in the world. Was there some moments that you went through and were reading the minutes and thinking, boy, I wish I could have been at that meeting? Or was it dry as dust? It was, uh, it was dry in some cases, but in some cases when, uh, again, I am, in one particular incident, and this was in the 1800s, when it wasn't labeled where a superintendent is actually accused of sexual harassment, but the label of sexual harassment did not come out until the 1990s, I believe. So it was later, maybe 1980s, but it didn't come out too much later to our lifetime. But before uh, a superintendent is accused, and it's in the school board minutes, uh, accused of uh, kissing a teacher, and then, uh, and so the school board listened, and then, and they proved there's no improprieties. And then later, the same superintendent is accused by another teacher of inappropriate behavior, and the school board finds not enough evidence. But three months later, this is all in the school board minutes, three months later, there is a school board meeting and they announced they're hiring a new superintendent. Hmm. So, yeah. Something happened that wasn't in the school board minutes. It, yes, well they basically probably went through the process of not in the school board minutes, of knowing that this superintendent uh, had needed to be removed, whether the allegations were true or not. But, uh, but it didn't take on the phase of sexual harassment because the term was not invented until much later mm -hmm in the 80s, uh, and I think it's from a group of teachers, uh, professors at a university who dubbed the, uh, the, uh, the concept and has been picked up as far as one of those things that we're looking out for, but yet it happened. Also, going through the school board minutes, it was, I found it very interesting because learning disability is something very new. And yet, going through the school board minutes, a parent comes, a mother, comes before the school board meeting and asks that her child 
who has not reached the legal age of uh, not going to school be considered to go into the job market because the child cannot learn. And she brings forth evidence where the child has not been able to learn and repeated classes and so forth. And so therefore, the school board grants her this permission them saying, that's learning disability. But yet it had not been labeled. But yet they were acting on these issues. And I guess enough issues came along, they took its proper labeling and the proper place in our history. But before that, these issues came on. Another very interesting and very disappointing issue in there was the segregation in the schools. And uh, there was, um, when new communities, and with, uh, I would like to say, the foreword of this was written by Kwasi Mfame, who was then the uh, president of the national NAACP. And so he likens the development of the school district to school districts all over, Pennsylvania and all over. So even though we take the Johnstown schools as a segment, this is basically an example of how school districts develop. But with, his, uh, with the development of the school district, and like other communities, we looked at the South as having segregation. And so I went to the public schools of, um, in, in the Harrison Township, uh, suburb of Pittsburgh. And so therefore, when I'm reading this, I'm reading it and saying, oh, segregation is beyond the South. But it mentions here where there is, uh, when people came to Johnstown, like in any other community, they settled in their communities. So there was a Jewish community, there's a Polish community, there's an Italian community. They settled in the community. And so when African Americans came uh, from the South, they settled in a community called Rosedale. And with Rosedale, there were first, there were uh, other ethnic groups there, but as other ethnic groups received money from them, it's the, the uh, steel mills were the great attractor then. As they uh, received money and earned a decent living or something, they would sort of migrate to another community and start another community. However, Afri the majority of African Americans coming settled in Rosedale, and it became a black community. So during a time when there was a mixed community, the schools were open. But in about 1917, when there was a majority of minorities living in this community, According to the school board minutes, their segregation there, where in the school board minutes, it actually mentions that they have separated, they give permission to use the Mexican hall for white students and the uh, and African-American black students were to remain in the Rosedale school. What, this was 1917? It's not 1917. How big was the African-American community then? What percentage of the population of the area? The percentage, the percentage of the population is still very small. So I would say it would probably be about 2 or 3%. But even now, the percentage of African-Americans in Johnstown is very small. So about 2 or 3%, but still concentrated in one community, in, one, uh, in company houses built by the steel mill. 
Who was the big employer then? Uh, Cambria Steel, which is now, which turned out to be Bethlehem Steel, and now uh, many parts of that is, are not functioning at all. But Cambridge Steel was the great employer, and those were the employer people who were bringing, the industries that were bringing in people of all sorts for labor. Uh, there is a, um, a museum, uh, a heritage museum there, who basically shows all of the history here with the Cambridge Steel and the blast machines and the coke plant and so forth there. So this is the area where they brought them in. But in this area, it shows that they are paying, actually in the school board minutes, they are paying teachers who are teaching white students more than teachers who are teaching blacks. So I said, that's segregation. And then later, a couple years later, in the school board minutes, it shows there is a discussion of transporting white students out because now there are very few, transporting white students out to other schools in Johnstown and keeping the school, Rosedale School, as a minority school. Is Rosedale within the city of Johnstown? It's it within the, the city school of school, same school board and within the city of Johnstown. However, uh, and so when these students are transported out, they're transported to other schools, we probably would have one or two minority students mixed in. But so therefore creating a black school in Rosedale. And that school existed until, um, it's about 1930s, when uh, I guess, again, the, the company no longer needed the company housing, the land was more valuable for stockpiling and so forth, and so therefore the community closed and it became a ghost town, and these students were actually went into uh, the other schools. It also shows where the principal of the Rosedale schools, were now a teacher in the Johnstown schools. And, uh, and so therefore you should see, look at the school board minutes. And a lot of it you have to read into the writing because you're saying, well, he's a, if he's a teacher now in the Johnstown schools and a principal here, there's that transition. So you realize there had been that transition of changing over and making all the schools equal uh, there. So these are the uh, significant things. There, um, again, in the school board minutes, it speaks of, and that was uh, very recently, in fact, um, for the state convention of the NAACP, uh, Dr. Leah Hollis, my daughter, came in and did a workshop in Johnstown on a segment of the schools when in, um, in the, during the riots in the 70s and so forth, early 70s, late 60s, whereas there were dress codes and therefore there was restrictions put on students of how they could dress. And it was a matter of interpreting this by uh, different groups of students. Uh, and an interpretation was that um, you couldn't wear a mustache. And I said, this was the, uh, the badge of adulthood, of manhood, for African-American males, so they were, as soon as they could grow a mustache, they were mustaches. And so therefore, they were not allowed to wear the mustaches. They were not allowed to wear the shikis. And on one particular incident, whereas uh, talking still, we're still talking in a time, a period of time 
where these people, some of the people were actively involved, that many in the community, in order to bring a point across, they were up all night making the shikis. Uh, <laughs> And so this was a day that everyone would spread the word of dashikis to school. And so um, they wore dashikis to school. And there was certain, uh, they had a certain coat that if they were offended or anything, everyone's going to walk out. Many of the teachers did nothing. They saw a potential problem. Nothing was said. But on one particular uh, issue, an administrator said, you're not allowed to school with a blouse on. And this gave the signal for everybody walked out. And I was talking with teachers who were there. And one said she didn't know what happened. Students just got up and walked out. There was a signal. Lunch bags went out of the window. And uh, one teacher says, I uh, continue to teach and she informed the students that you may leave if you choose to do so, but class will go on. And she said one student left. The students who were uh, graduating did not take, in, uh, take up the issue because they felt, because they said they would be expelled. They did not want to run the risk of uh, being expelled. And so they remained in the classroom. And when they got outside, which was uh, of the high school, they did not have this critical mass that they felt they needed. So what do you do? They went to the neighboring high school, Joseph John's high, a junior high school. They went down the halls, and the junior high school students had nothing to fear. So they all left, uh, minority students. Uh, I've talked with the majority and the minority students, and some of the majority students said until they read the book, I didn't know what was happening. All the black students just got up and walked out. Oh, kids who were students at the time. Yeah, they were students at the time. And now, when I was interviewing for the book, he said they just got up and walked out and followed the crowd. So when they got out, they knew that they couldn't be caught on the street, and there were fire trucks coming, and the police coming. So, in a nearby uh, church, I first came to Amy Zion Church, which now has a historical marker as being the oldest African American church in Johnstown. They, and, and Reverend Cunningham was then the pastor. These mobs of students marched across the bridge to this church. And, the, uh, and therefore, administrators came there and talked with them and reasoned with them. The minister got involved with trying to counsel them, and they stayed there. And they were now concerned with the penalties that were going to uh, happen for leaving and for such a mass of students. But with this, they were able to get an understanding, I believe, between administration and a group of students. They were able to get across. There are ethnic differences. We are diverse, but yet we have and our differences, our likenesses are greater than the differences but still we have to be respect some of the differences. And so therefore, I think the administration, the students, all came into agreement, and the students returned to school without any sanctions and was able to complete a school year. And I think, again, it was part of the movement, cut up with the movement of saying, we're not all the same. 
and that's okay. And that is okay. And I think it took a, uh, even though it was a, uh, I think, critical moment at the time. And when this was displayed for the state convention, some of those who led the uh, riot, some of those who were involved directly were there and they acted out the parts and they gave their rationale and their reasoning. And some of them are businessmen now who understood. Now, going back to, to 1917, for example, where you said that it, the, the Rose, uh, Rosedale, Rosedale became in effect segregated. Well, were there, did that extend to the workplace too? I mean, and with the different ethnic groups, like were there certain jobs that is thought in the steel mill, the Germans would do these, or the management would be this ethnic group? Or was it all like, did African-Americans and Irish and Germans work side by side in the mills? Uh, that is a misnomer that they work side by side. They may have worked side by side, but not in harmony. Uh, you have to re uh, consider coming from a foreign country, they were all speaking a different language. So therefore there had to be someone who interpret. And so there were departments. And I think even coming from the South, there was a sudden Southern dialect. It was still English, but a Southern dialect. And so therefore, I think there were groups of people who were put in certain jobs. And when, and when recruitment from the South, the recruitment was from the South for African-Americans, which is a term used now uh, to be politically correct. They were recruited because the Southern states are hotter. And so they felt, and they felt the Southern states were more like the, perhaps the native land of Africa and so therefore they felt if they could recruit from the South, then these men could take the heat, so to speak. And so they were in places like the blast furnace, the coke plant. And so therefore there is this group of people who are designated for certain jobs. And again, uh, recognizing differences. Uh, I was in San Antonio to visit my son a few weeks ago. And he says, mom, why don't you relocate here? And I says, it's too hot for me. I can't take the heat. But still, the, the thinking there, and here are people, men, who are in the cotton fields, who are trying to, to take care of their families and so forth. And here is a job, steady job, uh, that they can uh, maintain a family, survive. And so therefore, they come, and they have the conditions of a maybe steady pay, but still in a hot, probably much hotter than a cotton field, but this is something that you learn to endure for a livelihood. So I think the jobs, as you asked, are quite different, and we're quite different than some of the, uh, in, in some of the working uh, of all of them together and into a melting pot. They were melting, but not in the same pot. <laughs> How did the schools handle the, the ethnic diversity and the different languages? The school had many, uh, with the schools, there was always attempt to have someone of that language teach. And there also had, and there was a, an Americanization, and it runs through the book, it runs through the schools. And I think it would run through the schools of any school district because these people are coming from different, and some of them from the beginning are coming from the old country. So they're coming from the old country with their own. So therefore, they have 
have Polish-speaking teachers, they have Italian-speaking, and then they have an interpreter, and they work with them in the school district. And some of the schools, even for parents, realizing this was a language barrier, they have schools for, for parents, for adult schools, and this is how night school started. Basically, the first thing was teaching them Americanization, and that is the ling English language. So this was an extra, uh, extra barrier uh, with dealing, and I grew up in a Polish neighborhood, uh, suburban, they call Ducktown, suburban Pittsburgh, where, uh, again, the parents of the students did not speak English. And so therefore, there were uh, different, and so as far as going to school and being involved in the PTA and school events, this did not occur then. Now it's a very popular thing, and it should be. So therefore, there were schools, there were students going home and teaching their parents workable English. And so the school is recognizing this as an issue. They had school classes, and also they had classes for students where, they, where English was uh, a second language coming, and we had to teach them to be the first language. And, and through, again, the Americanization of the schools, where you're having different, not only in the Rosedales, not only in other ethnic communities, it was a matter of bringing them together and making them American, making them understand we have the one language. Uh, and, I think, and I think in some of this, the extra language, which is so valuable now, was sometimes lost because some of the parents felt that they were inhibiting their child's growth. And therefore, when they learned enough English or they forbidden their child to speak their foreign language, their, their, their mother tongue in the home, and they went to completely to English. And now we are becoming a community where there are many languages and we're recognizing the diversity. And some of the students who could have actually learned Spanish, French as the mother tongue, now they're going through, like the majority of Americans, struggling and learning this type of uh, the language. But at one time it was a natural thing. But we were so trying so hard to become Americanized, but we lost that very important element. Uh, your book goes back to the, the very earliest days of the Johnstown schools, public schools. What was the first school that you would have considered a public school in Johnstown? The first school was called Old Blackie. And the reason it was called Old Blackie is because of the building. Uh, it was uh, charred, it was old, and so forth. Uh, the, uh, it goes back to basically the founder, Joseph Johns, and uh, Johnstown is named after Joseph Johns. He has been classified as being Amish, an Amish farmer. And he had great, and he had laid a very remarkable plan of laying out Johnstown. And in, John's, in, the, in his original plans, there is a place for a school. And he had great hopes of Johnstown being a county seat. But Johnstown, but Evansburg seemed to have won out to be the county seat, and he later uh, retired and went to a farm in nearby Davisville, which is near Johnstown. But on the land that he had dedicated and laid out, the school was built, I was called Old Blackie. 
And this is where, which was uh, very, I think, the first graduating class of Johnstown had seven students, all females. And I think that says females are smarter. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe the males were in the coal mills, coal mines, and the steel mills, and therefore maybe education was more with the women having more free time going to school. But the first was a class of seven women, seven girls who graduated from Johnstown High School. But um, going back, Old Blackie was the first school, and then the schools began to build around it. And as I said, it had built up to 50 schools and to the different little uh, areas. And they were all walking and brown bagging it, going to their schools and home for lunch. And, um, taking periods of time off according to, until the um, mandatory school law came in. When was that and what, what years did it require people to go to school? And uh, this was uh, about, I believe in the early 1900s, uh, students were, it was became mandatory. The students had to spend so much time in school. It was mandatory that they stay in school from, um, uh, I think it was from six years old until uh, 16. So there was that free time where parents could, at one time could opt for children to go to kindergarten if they wanted to or first grade. But there's really not any point in them showing up or not, there was a point in them showing up, but it wasn't mandatory until I think it was eight years old. But if they didn't show up until they were eight years old, they've lost so much education before they got there. And so therefore they were programmed for failure. So uh, many people realizing this, and many at the age of 15, 16, were trying to figure out ways that they could get their sons, because at that time you had large families to help take care of the families. Or, and so if they wasn't into agriculture, they were getting them into the steel mills, and some were putting up their age to get in. So once they were into the steel mills, they were making uh, money to help the family. And this was a concept is the families, again, with the communities growing, the families helped each other. So during this time, uh, it was significant. Before the mandatory uh, education age where you had to stay until you were 16, parents could take their kids out of school at any age? Any age. How young would, uh, what was the likelihood of somebody actually graduating school when they got in, or was there some age at which they were likely to drop out? There was some age when they were, it depends on the size of the male. Uh, depending on the size of the male, if they were large and was able to go into the steel mills at 15 and 16, then the parents uh, basically pulled them out or encouraged them. You find many, if you look at, uh, talk to those who are in their 80s, 85, that's saying that they put their age up, changed their age in order to go into the workforce force early. Now, for the uh, women, it was not this type of incentive to go into the workforce. So you find many of the schools uh, with a, a large part of women uh, still graduating in the graduating class. As I mentioned, seven in the first graduating class. But uh, so a good part of them I uh, did not drop out. The men dropped out and went on. So you found those who were independently wealthy, or those parents who had money, 
they could keep their children in school. Those who were from uh, a working family with large families and needing help, these boys, Mills, were taken out of school as soon as they were able to go into the workforce. And this was prevalent uh, a good part before the World War II. Then when World War II came, you find one of the smallest graduating classes, they, uh, some of these, again, put their age up to go into the service. And so you found a, a reduced enrollment and many of them, women still in the schools, where the, uh, and actually the drafting, some of them were actually drafted out of high school, and which reduced the uh, workforce. Did the schools, in the beginning it was multiple grades in one classroom, uh, one room schoolhouse? With the size, I think all the schools, again, this is the history of the schools and it's a history of our, uh, of our system. And so the schools basically started with the one school. When it was enough, the critical mass where you could have two classes, then you had the primary grades and you had, and this is how they were labeled, the primary grades and then you had the intermediate. And they branched off and when you got more students coming into any particular class, you could break them up into grades. How, how would a teacher handle that? In 1880 or so, if you had grades, I don't know, first grade through eighth grade or higher in the same room? I had the opportunity. Um, I'm, um, I came to Pennsylvania when I was one year old. And I was born in uh, Griffin, Georgia, which is near Atlanta. And I have had the opportunity to go to the one-room school that my mother taught in. Where's that? That was in Griffin, Georgia. Oh, mm -hmm. And the one-room school, and when she, she explained that you basically, you started one group here, and it was a more independent work. You start a group here, you do something with them, you move to another group, and then you bring them together, and they all, I guess you all learn from each other. I think it would be, as a teacher, and with a teaching background, I think that would be most difficult. And again, I think some of the families were like teaching units. The families were, you talk about nine, 10 students, uh, children, the same class, and if the parents are helping or doing something, then the older ones must help the younger ones. So I think the, uh, the one-room school would be basically some of the older children reading to the others, and I think, uh, I think it would be very difficult for teachers as well as for students, because some days I think the students would feel they are just basically uh, teaching and what are they teaching and maybe uh, again they're teaching what they have been taught the day before and maybe it's reinforcing it but uh, but you think of the curriculum of an eighth grader and some of the things they had to learn there and sometimes graduation was at eighth grade uh, when I went to school we graduated eighth grade to go to college to high school and so therefore the eighth grade graduations, and I think in the, in the book here it speaks to that, eighth grade graduations were very significant because some students stopped at that point. And so therefore they had their graduation. It showed the significance. And some of them wanted their eighth grade graduation certificate. And in the ninth grade, which literally starts high school, the numbers were fewer because this is at the time where they began, if they could, drop out and get jobs. In some cases, even help at home. 
And in the um, going before the school board, a parent have gone through to the school board making a case that child is needed at home. And one incident, a father goes, he becomes widowed, he has younger children, he goes to the school board and asks for his daughter to be kept at home to help with the younger ones. And it's granted. So uh, roughly when was that? This would have been in the early 1900s. It's granted. So therefore, uh, this type of thing, the prize, the significance of education wasn't prized that high. And I have to, with Joseph Johns, going back at the beginning, and as an Amish farmer, realizing the significance of education, I would have to applaud him. And for this, the uh, Johnstown uh, administrators uh, to follow through and keep education there, and even though it was not always as popular, it was always there as a center of the uh, of uh, Johnstown, the building of Johnstown. Yeah, you you're, you said earlier your daughter was an educator. Yes. You were an educator. Your husband was an educator. Yes. Your mother was an educator. Yes, she was a teacher uh, in um, Griffin, Georgia. What kind of teacher? What did she well, teach? Elementary, one to eight in a one-room classroom. And your father? My father, uh, we came to Pennsylvania because, as you know, teacher education is very low paid. And before coming to Pennsylvania, he uh, worked uh, as a farmer in Georgia. And when we came, he was attracted by the steel mills and a better life that he could give his family and a great emphasis on education. And at that time that we moved here uh, to Pennsylvania, the schools in uh, Georgia were segregated schools. And so he wanted his children to go to a school that was not segregated. And so my father, even though uh, eighth grade education, graduated from eighth grade and uh, came here and with a great prize on upward mobility through education. Uh, we settled, as I said, in a town, uh, suburban Pittsburgh, Natrona Heights, uh, Ducktown, and went to the public schools there and basically thought this is the way the whole world was. And I thought the whole world, since I was one year old arriving, since we thought the whole world was that, I was very surprised when I'm reading the school board minutes and find out, oh, in Johnstown, this occurred. And other places and doing history and researching and things. And even though it was not spoken of as uh, segregated schools or not emphasized like the segregated South, we say, this is basically happening here. It's institutional. It is by gerrymandering. It's by housing and so forth. And so therefore you realize that even though some have labeled, it exists. And so you can, when you realize this, you have a better understanding of why the movement, why the civil rights movement, why the uh, human rights movement is for, and that's basically education making it available and basically upward mobility through education is something that I, I have to apprise my parents for. And at the time, child, time growing up, you don't realize this is why I'm here in Pennsylvania. You don't realize this was a great sacrifice uh, with my uh, family and the great emphasis, and there were six of, I'm number five, 
the fifth born of six. How many of you went to college? Um, three of us went to formal college. The other three were given any type of training that they wanted. And did, did your mother go to college? No. At that she time, was teaching it yeah, with... At that time, teachers, and even at the beginning of here, you find they went to a common school. And sometimes with a common school, it's those when they graduated from eighth grade, just like the, the students in a one school, your schoolhouse, they teach the younger ones. When in a common school, it's basically, and teaching is often a two-year degree. And they came back, and this is something that's, I think, you would find in the last 25 years that teachers in the public schools are required to have a degree to teach. And I think in some states, and I don't want to quote any states, even as 10 years ago, some of the teachers did not have degrees to teach. And so if you graduate from high school, the thinking is that you could teach someone in kindergarten or first grade. And this is a philosophy there. So therefore, she had graduated from eighth grade, and she was teaching in a one uh, room school of what she, her knowledge was of that. Well, we're about out of time, but this is your first book? I have written other books for my classroom. Uh, I uh, teach for the University of Phoenix online and also for Kaplan University. And I've used books and I've taught uh, at the University of Pittsburgh uh, and I've taught uh, other places and, and in the public schools of Johnstown. And I've, used, I've written other books that I've used only for my classroom, and some of it is teaching uh, writing of how to develop and write a book and how to put together a book. But this is the one first one that I have published. This is the book we've been talking about, The Saga of the Johnstown City Schools. Dr. Clea Hollis, thank you very much. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.